should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. It's Tuesday, so John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us as my co-host. John, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me here. Hello, everybody. It was a very active weekend for the Bay Area in a lot of ways, but I think by now many people know that it was active because of the the no rallies that happened, <laughs> the rallies that were canceled due to the overwhelming participation of so many people here who were counter-protesting, although the media has been saying quite a lot of stuff, and so what, what I think is important for us here on the show is to break it down and be as accurate as possible as far as what actually really happened here in the Bay Area and why it's important to know. This past weekend, I think this show, what we're going to do is speak to a couple organizers who did protest, also speak with participants who were there, and uh, and then talk to people who were involved in very many different ways. Before we get the show started, I do want to acknowledge the fact that uh, a lot is happening in Texas regarding Hurricane Harvey. The president and his wife have touched down today. Uh, many people are talking about her heels, but let's not, yeah, her her shoes. She's wearing some, I don't know, Manolo. <laughs> I'm going to take a guess that there's some Manola Blonics or something. Um, something really expensive and they're super high heels and she looks like she's filming like the new version of Top Gun or something. But uh, there are real victims of the hurricane. Lots of people need help. And so please help if you can. There's so many different ways. I think the most important thing is uh, think about, you know, cash donation. They're, they're going to need cash right now if you're here in California, you're not in Texas. So um, look up Red Cross or any food banks or anything that you can do, I promise you that five bucks, ten bucks goes a long way. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our special guest is on the phone with us, and that's Jennifer Beach. She's with Surge, which is uh, showing up for racial justice. It's a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. They definitely were involved in the Bay Area as far as organizing and protesting. Jennifer, welcome to the program. It's so great to be here. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, let's I mean, you know, San Francisco, Berkeley, two different uh, things happen, I think, for a lot of people. But everybody has a different opinion. Let's start with Surge and what the organization did as far as rallying and organizing for the counter-protesting of right-wing, neo-Nazi, white supremacy-type people who are coming to the Bay Area? All right. Well, we there's two different groups of Surge that were involved in this weekend's organizing. There's Surge San Francisco, uh, which is, you know, obviously based in San Francisco, and then there's Surge Bay Area, which is based in um, the East Bay. And we re- worked on... Each other. We worked respectively in our in our respective cities, and then there was some cross city presence. I was both in San Francisco, at Alamo Square in the Mission and at Christie Field, and then on Sunday I was in Berkeley in support of the Surge Bay Area organizing that was happening there as well. So, what, so I don't know if you want me to talk about kind of like the approach we take or yeah, know, please. Perspective what, or, what was the approach, and how did you go about? You know, what uh, information did you share with the people you were hoping would would turn out for you? Well, Surge sees its role as organizing white people to combat racial injustice. And so part of our mission is to follow leadership whenever possible 
of people of color, organizations led by people of color. Um, in, in this case, in, in the initial stages, that leadership didn't make itself as present. I think there was a lot of question about people's safety issues um, and concerns. And so we, but we decided a little bit earlier on that we wanted to be, make a very strong statement um, in opposition to the white supremacist movement that was making its presence known here. And, but then later, a, a wide range of organizations found each other, and there, were co- there was a very powerful coalition work that happened both in the East Bay and in San Francisco, um, trying to respect the diversity of tactics and make it possible for a wide range of folks to be as active in their opposition as possible, given the tremendous constraints that we were working under. So that meant here in San Francisco, uh, you know, respecting people who might decide to go to Civic Center and respecting people who might want to be closer to the, um, to the gathering itself, in, in first in, in Chrissy Field and then later in Marina Green and then later in Alamo Square and then later in <laughs> Chrissy Field again. And, and literally how, I mean, what, so the point was what, to get people to actually just be there? Were, were you giving them signs to hold or... Uh, were they, you know, is there any hope that they will do something, they won't do something? I mean, where, well, I think coming out is doing something. I think demonstrating is exactly that. You are mm-hmm. demonstrating your opposition. You are making a statement to the world that you oppose white supremacy and fascism and that you're going to stand together in a movement to oppose it. And, and I think social change happens in many ways, but I think these public calls to action are very important expressions of resistance. So we, and Serge, what we did literally in San Francisco is we literally had a security training where we publicly called for people to come to a a professionally-led training to how to do security for demonstrations. We asked people to form a contingent, to join us in a contingent. We offered security for the gathering. You know, we tried to support the larger coalition effort and to mobilize our own constituents to be there in a kind of an organized way. Mm -hmm. So... Jennifer, I wanted to to ask you something. I mean, I've heard from a lot of uh, black activist leaders who have made statements that, um, you know, uh, this is blanket, but pretty much white people need to help in the fight to break down racial oppression and and discrimination or racism in general here in this country. How do you feel about, you know, that statement in general and how it applies to everything that Surge is doing? And when you talk about, you know, mobilizing people to provide even, you know, like security training, um, something like that, like, why is that important? Because I feel like for a lot of of white people who are trying to make sense of where they where they fall into the spectrum, am I racist or am I not racist? What am I doing? Am I complicit or am I not? Um, Security training, this is important if we're out there and we're doing this because at times it does get violent, doesn't it? It does. There, there are moments where you have to be prepared for violence. And I think in this particular moment, more than I've been an activist for a long time, but I think this is one of a particular moment, like even in Berkeley, where you had what ended up being this huge celebration of a multifaceted voice against fascism. There were people who said, oh, I left the rally. And all of a sudden, four guys got out of a out of a car with um, football gear and Trump t-shirts, and I was suddenly very, very afraid. And so I think that that kind of intimidation, um, in the, even in the outskirts of a crowd, I think is different than other movements we've seen in the Bay Area, um, you know, in the last 25 years or so. You know, I think it's much more akin to what the gay community, what the queer community has known for a long time, right? People come into your neighborhood in small cars, and all of a sudden you can be in your neighborhood and feel safe and feel supported. And then all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who actually want to hurt you. And I think that's, you know, I think I do think that coming out in this moment ha- has that possibility. I don't think that's the dominant experience by far, but I think you have to be alert to that. You have to be aware and you have to think about your surroundings in a way that people who are organizing in other parts of the country might might be more sophisticated with than people from the Bay Area. Yeah, absolutely. I wanna, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I want to just say one thing about yeah. your, your question about what is white people's role in fighting racial justice, because um, you said that in the beginning of your question, you know, and I just, I want to make it clear that if people believe that they are not affected by the racist construction of the country, then they're just fooling themselves, and that's a privilege. That's a, delu- mm-hmm. a privilege of delusion, and that we all live in a profoundly racially defined country, and we all suffer the consequences of that, even if 
we pri- are in the, on the privileged end of that, and that until we as a nation confront our our racist and white supremacist history and the ways in which uh, white supremacy informs our everyday economic realities, we can never, ever make progress. Um, we can never be post-racial or any other vision of um, being judged by the content of our character until we come to terms with the very foundation of the country, which is based in imperialism and in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. And that kind of was the, the heart of where I was going. And at the same time, I, 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 I put those two points together in a question because so many people of color, especially uh, black people in here in this country, have put their bodies, their lives right. on the line to fight for freedom. And so all the, you know, the, these questions or what the media is posing as far as um, – you know, you know, liberals or anybody fighting for racial justice, uh, using violence or fighting back, you know, the, these are crazy lunatics or this narrative that's coming out. And, I, and I, I love that point of going back to remind everyone, like, hello, throughout the, uh, you know, since since Columbus arrived. I mean, it's it's been violent. People of color, uh, indigenous people, black people have lost many, many, many lives at the, you know, at the, the, the price or the cost of freedom. Or, or of non-freedom. I mean, yeah. I mean, freedom for who? I mean, the, you know, I, I, I think from the very beginning, it was a colonial enterprise. It was an imperialist enterprise, and it was a racist enterprise. And in fact, our very notions of race as a construct are profoundly embedded in the need to separate people in order to better control them in services, in, in service to the elite, right? So to me, you know, capitalism is, a com- important, is, a, is a critical component. Racism is... It, you know, has been developed as an ideology and a mechanism to support a certain uh, consolidation of capital, for sure. Absolutely. Jennifer, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back in the second half of our interview, I want to talk to you about, you know, just kind of uh, your your thoughts, your positions in the lack of leadership here in this country and many people um, who might not understand why that is making things so much worse as uh, we talk about racial injustice here in this country. So stick with us, okay? All right. Thank you. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone is our special guest, Jennifer Beach, who is with Surge. Surge stands uh, for 
showing up for racial justice. It's a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. I wanted to read something from the website. You can go there now if you'd like, showingupforracialjustice.org, of, uh, under the why. why. Why show up for racial justice? And I thought this was really, really, really great. We live in a time of great hope and possibility, yet the potential for a just world for all of us is not possible when racism and oppression keep us divided. And so, Jennifer, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, to touch upon that. We live in a great time. We live in a time of great hope. Yes, we do. But under President Trump, that hope seems to be uh, chipping away a little bit. I mean, it, it's a politically challenging time, which is nothing new for the country. But how does this, you know, play into uh, uh, organizations like Surge having to come together to fight racism now more than even the last five years? Well. I think that, you know, having a, a leader at the top of the nation's uh, government that who has made his support for white supremacist organizations pretty crystal clear um, from before and after the election uh, has, in, in many ways, kind of woken people up to realize that, um, you know, I think that under the Obama administration, there was this idea that we were making progress, that we were on some inevitable road to racial equality, um, and we could just kind of support the Obamas and feel good about the movement of the country. And and I think that the problem with that approach is that it allowed us to pretend that things were somehow getting better, even as the conditions for African-American and Native people and Latino people were deteriorating at, an, at a, a shocking rate, right? So, uh, so even though things weren't getting better, we allowed ourselves in certain ways. Certain certain ways, things did get better, but in other ways, they didn't. Um, it's still for a you know a young black uh, man is still more likely to go to prison than go to college, right? And I have young black men in my family, and I see that struggle, and I see the schools to prison pipeline very active in my gentrified community. And, and, and that was true all during the Obama presidency. So not to equate them or something, but I do think that the upside of having a racist president is that people realize that there is there continues to be a problem of violent and oppressive racism and that to do that and then therefore to do something becomes, you know, more of the palatable um, response, right? It, it becomes less and less possible to pretend that everything is going in a great direction and we can just live our lives and pretend that's not happening. And so, you know, it forces white people to question, what role am I going to play in this new period, right, in, in, in these new challenges? Am I going to find ways, and surge is only one way, there's many, many ways, to participate in building a more just society, which is going to mean taking an increasingly critical um, position in regards to the government and towards white supremacists who are outside of the government, um, how, do, how can I do that? Should I write letters? Should I go to demonstrations? Should I talk to people in my family or at my workplace? Should I, you know, how can I support social change, which now has become nakedly, obviously critical I think in a way that, that it wasn't before? Right. I, I think that's a great point because for decades, probably forever, but since, let's say, since the civil rights movement, when it became uh, politically unacceptable, at least, in polite you know, in polite uh, uh, company to uh, to openly be a racist, to openly support racist organizations, and then now to have someone at the top who doesn't seem to have any problem, you know, saying there are very fine people who are Nazis, et cetera. Um, it does kind of allow, a, a, okay, fine. Now we can talk about it directly. Now we can talk about the real things. And it's putting a lot of folks who liked to kind of do the wink and nod stuff to uh, the, the really vile uh, groups in the country, uh, politically, you, know, you know, the racist groups, um, it puts them in the spot of having to, d you know, to do something they can't hide behind. Oh, that's not what I meant. Of course. We you know, and I think that it's hard. I think living in the United States is actually much more difficult than people realize. I think, you know, people, even, you know, even people of privilege, they have to work a lot. They don't get to see their kids. They, you know, like staying on top of their bills is an endless struggle that they're embarrassed to confront. So I think, you know, people might not experience them, themselves as being privileged. That might not be what it feels like. But now we have to, despite those challenges, right, we're called to action. 
right? Um, and and to see those those challenges as points of commonality, right? And as points of departure, you know, what role can I play, right? Um, in the face of this overt, explicit white supremacist movement. So, kind of bringing this full circle, give us your uh, uh, assessment of this past weekend. How did the groups who oppose the racists? How did they perform? How did how do you think uh, the impact of this will will uh, be realized? You know, I think it was a tremendous weekend. I think it was a huge success for the progressive movements across the Bay Area. I think people came together in very short order, and they made um, communications and collaborations and mutual support um, across movements and tactics that I think uh, I think made us extremely powerful. I think it was very hard. You know, I think Patriot Prayer is a very complicated political movement, and we were struggling to understand it, its messaging, its tactics, you know, its implications. But I think this, and, and then the whole thing where they cancel things and have them anyway, you know, that was very difficult. But we really kept going, and we kept talking to each other, and we kept making space for different kinds of actions. And, and not kind of falling into these conventional struggles within the progressive community of no, do it my way, no, do it my way, you know, mm-hmm. saying we're going to support everybody doing their thing. And I think uh, it ended up being being powerful and being beautiful. I definitely think so. Sorry, I had my mic potted down because <laughs> <laughs> we were typing away. Um, as we wind down, Jennifer, I mean, I, I really want people who are tuning in here uh, and uh, Progressive Voices is all across the country, if not worldwide, through the TuneIn app uh, because there there is this conversation. There's this big conversation that's happening among, you know, white people. John, you, you're white, and I'm guessing, Jennifer, you are too. I am um, white, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. But, I mean, and, and this question can go, you know, for both of you as far as, like, having the effective conversations with family members, with colleagues, with your, you know, your 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 people. I don't, what, I don't know how else, other white people you know, who need to join in on the conversation and or be involved in breaking down racism and what what's worked for you. And that could be, you know, and it, this answer can be personal. It doesn't necessarily need to reflect on, you know, Serge's uh, strategies. So are you asking, like, what, what we've done that has felt like effective anti-racist conversations? Is that what you're... Yeah, 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 I think so. Thank you. Thanks for okay, clarifying that white, for me. Okay. Yeah, as a white person talking to another white person. Because, right. you know, a lot of times right. people come to people of color and especially black people and be like, what can I do? How can I help? I'm not racist. Right. And I, I love, black, you know, and then it's like, right. uh, but what's effective when you're talking, you know, between a white person and a white person and talking about racial injustice, what's been effective for you? Well, do you want to take that, John, or do you want me to answer that? Sir? Well, okay, so I, I have, I don't tend to get into... I mean, I don't have racists in my family, of, or at least anyone I know of who's, you know, done this. I will say my father kind of had that moment with his father. So my paternal grandfather was in many ways a very good father, a good, you know, provider and all that kind of stuff. Um, also racist. And, and uh, you know, he thought the Jews were behind everything as well and et cetera. And, uh, you know, my dad was finally able just to say to him, look, in my home, <laughs> don't talk like that. And, and I think, and in fact, uh, someone I work with recently was t- telling a story about uh, her father who had a similar type of issue with uh, his, I think, stepfather or something. And uh, kind of the same thing. You're just putting up barriers because, um, not barriers, you're putting up boundaries. But also what they're saying is, you know what, you by casually using the N-word or you by casually you know, making denigrating comments about someone, and you know, y- you're kind of assuming that either I agree with you or that I don't find that offensive. And and I, I do think just dealing with it directly and 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 uh, clearly is is very important to letting these folks know that no, they're not normal, they're, and it's not acceptable. I don't know if that's a wi- widely applicable thing, but I mean that's what I've seen the most. Well, I, I agree that, I, you know, I think it's important to find ways conversationally to challenge kind of those overt expressions of kind of racist conceptions. You know, I think I'm probably like a lot of white people in the Bay Area. I don't know that many people who would use that language to begin with, 
Um, so that's not so much kind of where I feel like my personal uh, challenges kind of lie. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I, I think that that's a great approach if you do encounter that. You know, I, I think that... Um, I think there's a few things. One is I think it's not just about us personally not being racist. I feel like as a white person, it's my job to organize other white people to actively in their life oppose white supremacy, not just to change their language or their conceptions. Although I think even among my nice progressive friends, we have racist conceptions that affect our everyday interaction. And we should find ways to gently talk to each other about each about this in, in order to foster growth. But more to the point, I want to, I want to find ways to encourage perfectly nice white people who don't have any particular conscious attachment to a white supremacist structure to see how they can be reflective in being less supportive of, of racism and of, of racist structures in our lives. So, you know, I think part of, part of, for me, talking to white people is to challenge people in their thinking, but also to to do so in a way that fosters ongoing conversation. Because I want people to come. You know, I, I teach college students, and I teach in a mostly not white college, but I but there are a lot of nice, uh, well-intentioned white students who want to do the right thing, and they're not sure how. And so I think offering a role model, modeling behavior and discussions and inquiry, right, a level of inquiry I think is are, are important steps in kind of building a broad-based anti-racist movement, even especially perhaps among people who might not otherwise think of themselves as activists, right? I feel like it's a time for people to push themselves to do more. Um, Jennifer, I want to thank you yeah. so much for joining us here on the program and sharing, you know, Surge with us and doing all the work that you're doing as well as the organization and organizing. Uh, thank you. Well, I just want to say, if you're in San Francisco, we have an open meeting the second Monday of every month at Alley Cat Books on 24th Street in the Mission District, and that anybody who's listening who thinks, oh, I want to get to know these people and this this approach a little more, you're always welcome to come to our open um, welcoming meetings the first, the second, sorry, the second um, Monday of every month at Alley Cat Books. Awesome. Thank you. And Jennifer, I'm sure of it that we'll be in touch and uh, and asking you to come back on the show <laughs> many times throughout, you know, uh, this this time. I, I, don't, I can't put a timeline on it, but thank you so much for your time today. All right. Well, thank you very much. Don't go away. When we come back, uh, we will have more. We'll speak to participants of the counter-protesting that happened here in the Bay Area and and I hope that what it gives you is an accurate account and not necessarily um, what everyone else is saying in the news media outlets. Uh, although I, I'm not going to say that those things didn't happen. I'm just going to say that I think that it was uh, exaggerated, as most news outlets are. So don't go away. Come back. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. 
be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And today the show is focused on what happened here in the Bay Area this past weekend. Uh, there are tons of reports out there of peaceful, peaceful counter-protesting here in San Francisco. And then there are reports of what happened in Berkeley. Um, just to recap for you, I, I mean... Yesterday, I spent all day trying to break down like who these people were that were trying to come to San Francisco. Some of them actually lived in San Francisco. So we talked a lot about Patriot Prayer, Joey Gibson. I'm kind of tired of him. But, you know, they, they canceled the rallies. And, and we have speculation of why they canceled the rallies. But, you know, there are 30 uh, Patriot Prayer dudes or whatever, or maybe even 100, could not... They could not match up to the thousands, and you saw the pictures that came out in major media outlets of what was going on in San Francisco, especially what was going on in Berkeley. But what we want to do here on the show is just kind of give you a much more accurate account from people who actually went and demonstrated or counter-protested and not just get that all from, you know, major media outlets. So our next guest is uh, Stephanie Joy Ashley, who's here in San Francisco. Many of you who tune into the show probably know her uh, from other organizations. She's the former president of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club here in San Francisco. And she absolutely did attend the counter-protesting that happened in San Francisco and in Berkeley. So, Steph, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for being committed to um, you know, comprehensive coverage of this weekend's event. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So tell us, San Francisco, um, let's start with that. You know, kind of yeah. what happened for you? What were your, uh, what was your experience? Yeah, well, you know, for me, um, I really hoped when I, when I saw what happened in Charlottesville, I was really afraid. I think like most of us were, I was really afraid that this was going to become the new normal that, um, that these, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, would feel emboldened to come into any city, any town that they wanted and just basically, you know, terrorize and cause violence um, on various communities. And when I saw what happened in Boston, I um, it sort of gave me an, a new burst of hope. I saw that there was another reality that could be possible, which was one where where cities stood up and, and said no and outnumbered them and shut them down. And so I really hoped that that's what would happen in the Bay Area, and I'm so glad that, that a, a version of that is what happened. Um, on Saturday in San Francisco, I um, pulled together a little group of friends, mostly queer, um, mostly queer women and trans people, and we um, met up with a group of uh, the Bay Area Queer Resistance that met up in the Panhandle, and marched together over to Alamo Square Park. And, um, you know, we, so we, there was about 100 of us, and we walked the, the several blocks to, to the park with some really fabulous chants like, let's see, what was one of them? We're here, we're gay, we fight the KKK. <laughs> um, and we met up with a bunch of people, you know, the Frisco Pride, and um, I believe Surge was there, and a number of groups that, added up to probably a few thousand people that surrounded Alamo Square. Um, several unions were there. I was really glad to see that. And then we marched down Market Street and headed down to the Mission and eventually uh, met up with folks at Civic Center. So what I think was really beautiful about San Francisco is you had these different actions um, in the Castro, in Alamo Square, at Civic Center, op opportunities for people to plug into the resistance um, based on sort of what their comfort level was with confrontation. Were any of the either Patriot Prayer or any of the, the you know, right-wingers visible at all, or do you think they had all decided to hang low that day? Um, from my vantage point near Alamo Square, you know, Alamo Square was obviously shut, mm -hmm. shut down. It was fenced off. Sure. So there was no place for them to sort of congregate all as one unit. But I did feel that, 
they were there. Um, maybe a handful of them kind of spread out. I, I saw people who, um, seemed to not be with any of the marching contingents, um, you know, kind of reporting back on their phones about people's location, um, and looking like they were trying to suss out what was happening. Um, and also filming. There was a lot of people, and I'll talk more about this when we talk about Sunday, but there were a lot of people who I believe were um, intending to demonstrate white supremacy who were there who were filming um, what was happening. And then, as, as you all have probably already talked about, they did end up meeting up later in the day at Christie Field. And I know that, you know, there were groups who were looking to, to make sure that they didn't show up and, and actually right. rally anywhere. I did not go to Christie Field because by that point, my group um, had kind of disbanded and, and separated. And a big safety strategy for me, for myself, for this weekend was safety in numbers and really trying to make sure um, that, you know, especially because the people I was with were were queer, um, were, you know, some people of color, were people who were potentially likely to be targets, um, that we all really traveled in groups. So I did not go out to Christie Field at the end of the day, but I know people who did. No, I, I think that that's a, a good decision to make. Lots of people are saying, like, if you're alone, don't go, don't go. Um, but yeah. go, going back to if anybody's just tuning in and kind of wondering, why Elmo Square? I thought it was going to be at Chrissy Field. Again, these guys canceled Chrissy Field after the National Park Service um, issued them, you know, their rules or limitations. Like, they couldn't bring in guns. They couldn't bring in hockey sticks and bats and, and all this stuff. And so supposedly... Um, or my thinking is that I think that the Oath Keepers, who are the guys who are supposed to be protecting the, you know, their own security mm-hmm. detail for this group, basically were like, no, we're not going to show up if we can't show up with our guns. And they spun that as, well, we, we can't protect ourselves from, you know, the crazy liberals, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's either that or they're afraid of the dog poo that was littered everywhere <laughs> that I think that they're mad at. But they tried to send, and then they tried to do a news conference at Alamo Square. Uh, the police fenced it off not to shut it down. Well, uh, and, and, and it yeah. should be pointed out, the city, of course, doesn't control Chrissy Field. That's right. the National Park Service. Alamo Square, on the other hand, was is city property. And these people didn't have a permit for it. So, you know, they, you put it in the hands where the city can actually do something then. Right. Oh, yeah. Fencing goes up really quickly on that. Case. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was to uh, separate counter protesters from yeah. actual protesters. So it wasn't about shutting them down. But um, anyway, so that's what happened in San Francisco. And then in Berkeley, there was a, a woman, um, a trans woman, Amber Cummings, who was trying to organize a no Marxism rally um, and and supposedly had called all her, you know, people, it, which would be kind of the Patriot Prayer people and, 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 and uh, the, the white supremacist type, you know, they attract these types of groups to not show up and that she would take on Antifa by herself. So I would like to hear from Steph, like what Berkeley was like for you. Yeah, <clears throat> Berkeley was was beautiful. I mean, San Francisco was absolutely gorgeous and very San Francisco. <laughs> and Berkeley, you know, to me, I think looked um, maybe more like Boston, insofar as you know, there was one meeting place that everyone had agreed upon. There was a, um, a up at Crescent Crescent Green or Crescent Field is where we met up, and there were just thousands of people, there was music, there was speakers, there were children, you know, there were um, grannies in wheelchairs, there were just just all, all kinds of people there um, having a really beautiful demonstration of, you know, united um, anti-racism. And um, we all, someone, actually Nato Green, who's a local comedian, said, yeah, it has a real farmer's market vibe. <laughs> so, you know, that's how peaceful it felt. Um, it felt very farmer's markety. Um, and then at a certain point after, I guess, probably about an hour and a half or so, everyone decided that they would march um, down to the MLK Civic Center. And again, it was a really big, beautiful march. There were um, lots of unions working security on the sidelines. Um, there were people drumming, playing music, um, just just every different, you know, stripe of person that you could imagine was there. Um, and pretty much right out the gate, something that I saw, 
um, again, we were maybe a block into the march, was a very large white man with a shaved head and, and sunglasses on with someone next to him with a big video camera, came up to the side um, near where me and my friends were marching, came up to the side of the march and started kind of provoking people, antagonizing people, um, and, you know, cameras rolling. So it became very clear to us that, okay, they're, they're trying to start fights. We thought we were going to march you know, and, and, and surround MLK Civic Center, and actually they came to us, um, or at least this guy did. And so very quickly, you know, I looked over, and he was shoving people and running the camera. Um, and I got to say that some members, some union members um, did a really great job of going over to him and, and unveiling a, a banner that said, Refugees Welcome, to kind of separate him out, um, to block his camera, but it was very apparent to me from the get-go that one of the strategies that they had, um, you know, that they had set out for in that day was to try and get footage of the left, I guess we'll say, of, of us um, engaging in confrontation. And that they were willing to proactively come into our march and set up those situations. So it was, it was stressful. It was scary. It was really nerve-wracking. And... Um, you know, there were several, several people like him engaging in that tactic. And still, um, you know, the march remained peaceful and everyone did a really good job of just sort of ejecting those people that were trying to do that. Um, but it makes sense to me why some people wanted to have their faces covered because they were, they were, they were there to film. It reminded me of, um, I used to work in the in the District 9 office in San Francisco, and we have a Planned Parenthood clinic here. And it reminded me of the anti-choice protesters who used to stand outside the Planned Parenthood clinic and videotape women coming in and out of the clinic, you know, as a way to sort of to intimidate and, and as sort of a threat um, that we're going to be following you, we're going to be watching you. That's what it felt like to me. Now, of course, what some of the media did focus on was there there was some, excuse me, some violent reaction from some folks. Uh, uh, it's been blamed on the Antifa folks. Did you see any of that? So I personally didn't see any of that. Um, and, you know, there was a moment where, um, where the march had kind of started to get closer to, to MLK Civic Center and um, some of the org- march organizers said, okay, everybody, you know, some people were close to BART. If you want to leave and BART, this is a good place to break off. Some people are going to be marching closer to the park. Um, you know, if you want to do that, be aware. We've heard reports that there may be um, pepper spray. It was unclear where it was coming from at that point. And, you know, my group of friends and I were sort of on the fence about what should we do. And then we saw this group of um, of clergy and mostly of black clergy, um, all kind of congregate and start to, to lead a march singing, um, you know, this little light of mine and we shall not be moved and marching towards the park. And it was so peaceful and so powerful and so beautiful. And we joined in with them by the time we got to, um, to the civic center, you know, the, the park had been completely taken over. Um, by the people. There were probably a hundred or so, um, you know, people that we would probably identify as Black Bloc that were there kind of keeping an eye on everything and holding the park down. Um, But it was announced sort of through a a people's microphone that all of the, all of the neo-Nazis had been, had left. And that was a really beautiful moment. Um, When that was announced, I can't even describe to you sort of the the relief, the fear that was lifted, and what what a victory it felt like. Because keep in mind, the goal of this weekend was to have the Bay Area stand together to say no hate in the Bay, right? To say that there would not be space for white supremacist rallies to take place. And so it was a really huge victory. Um, and you know, I've seen some of the some of the uh, video footage that's circulating now where, you know, some punches are being thrown. And I have to say, um, you know, I was really afraid that this was going to be a quote-unquote battle at Berkeley, right, and that there were going to be people hospitalized. And, you know, I heard the Berkeley police saying a week before that they were 
quote unquote putting money on someone getting run over by a car. So we were we were anticipating that there might be violence and the fact that everyone that came out to protest peacefully made it home safely, I think was a huge victory. And I do think that that was in part because um, some people in the black bloc took on the responsibility of getting rid of white supremacist antagonizers. And, you know, I think personally, I think that they did that um, mostly by yelling and chasing and maybe with a few punches. Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the show and giving your personal account of what happened in San Francisco and Berkeley. And I want to thank you for showing up for peace and love. And uh, people like you is what makes San Francisco so beautiful. Thank you, Michelle. I feel the same way about you. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll speak to more participants from this weekend's counter-protesting. And our, our last final interview, I think a great addition to what we've talked about. This person went above and beyond as, as far as volunteering and I mean by becoming a volunteer medic to help anybody who got uh, hurt this past weekend, if it was the case. So we'll hear from them. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our final guest on the phone is Alex Williams, who's here from the Bay Area. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here on the program. No problem, no problem. All right, so we've been talking all hour long about uh, just kind of what happened here in the Bay Area and uh, the counter-protesting of the uh, white supremacy groups and or groups who support, you know, white supremacy like Patriot Prayer and such. And so I, I wanted to hear from you kind of what your weekend was like. First, tell us about yourself and, and you know, what this weekend meant for you. Uh, well, this all started for me when Heather Heyer died. Uh, I was not in Charlottesville, but like everyone else, I saw it on TV, and I felt hopeless in that moment to help her. Um, as a medical professional, I wanted to do something more, and so I put a post out on the 16th of August just saying that I was going to go and stop fights when I saw them and administer medical care to whoever needed it, and that I was willing to go alone, and my community said, no, we're going to help you. And so I ended up getting a lot of volunteers and donations. And we came together as a group after practicing and getting equipment together, and that's exactly what we did over the weekend, both in San Francisco and in Berkeley. Did you have how, what kinds of uh, needs did you did you serve? I mean, it, obviously there were some worries that it would be a lot worse than anything that that did happen. But uh, what did you see? Well, San Francisco was an overwhelming joy to be a part of. We didn't see violence. We saw people that were ready to have a conversation, and we're in celebration around diversity, and it was nice to be around um, that kind of celebration. But we were geared up and ready to help whoever needed help. It was a good dress rehearsal for us because Saturday 
was a much different story. Uh, you mean Sunday uh, in Berkeley? Oh, sorry, Sunday. Yeah, yeah, Sunday was a much different story in Berkeley. And so tell us about Berkeley. Um, well, I think the police did the best job they could, especially in the beginning. They had the park blocked off at, me- at many points to make sure that um, people that came into the park to peacefully protest didn't have weapons. Um, and we were allowed to come in with our medical gear, and we were mainly just observing at that point. The interesting thing was was that there were about 13 white supremacists, and they seemed to be more about being provocateurs than actually having a discussion with people. Um, and then it really, de- it really devolved into violence. There were reports of uh, Joey Gibson, who's with Patriot Prayer, the guy who canceled the rally in San Francisco. And, um, you know, he ended up not doing anything in San Francisco, maybe kind of showing up here and there what he said he was going to do to the news. He did show up to the rally in Berkeley. I don't know if you saw him at all um, or knew of any uh, Patriot Prayers who were part of that group that you can, you know, talk to about being someone provoking the situation. Uh, I mean, we saw all of them. So part of what the ethos of my team is, is we want to make sure that whoever you are, whatever your speech is, how we show our patriotism is we make sure that you don't get hurt when you're having your speech, um, whether I disagree with your speech or not. And that that gentleman was there. There was an a, other gentlemen there, white supremacists, and what seemed to happen was they would be on the outskirts and they would rile the crowd up. And in Joey's um, example, he would run into the crowd and either say something or do something physically, and then you had um, counter-protests, counter-protesters chasing him. Um, And then eventually they would get to him and either pepper spray him or start to hurt him. And that's exactly the narrative that they were looking at. If you looked at what happened throughout the day, uh, the white supremacists would start something and then run away from the counter-protesters as they're being chased, and everything is on film. Um, I wouldn't say that it was a circus, but it was definitely orchestrated to fit a narrative that, you know, these liberals of Berkeley are violent savages. And that's unfortunately what's happening throughout um, the news right now, which really people were being provoked um, and defending themselves. What sort of injuries did you see or treat? Um, mainly we saw, we, we saw pepper spray. We, we, um, we treated a lot of pepper spray, um, and there was a fight that we got into that we stopped, actually, uh, where about 13 people were, um, were were beating a, a uh, white supremacist. Now, before before this conflict happened, we watched as he ran into the crowd to provoke them. Um, and so our job was basically just to give space and stop whatever physically happening. My, my personal self is how I feel about it is you, you can't tell me something, anything that you have to tell me is not going to get me to, to bash your head in. So I believe that we're better than that. And so that's what my team did was to give that kind of space so that no one got hurt. Alex, I want to thank you so much for giving your honest, true account of what happened this weekend. And uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, super um, just human. So amazing of you to think of, you know, this uh, to volunteer in a way um, in which not a lot of people are, are thinking about, which is, you know, to save people's lives if, if you needed to. Um, so again, you know, just to wrap up, my last question for you is just kind of what, what messages would you send out to folks out there who want to who wanna get involved, who might be um, activated, you know, politically by what's going on uh, and think that the only thing that you can do is either protest or, or not protest? You have to find what you're comfortable with. What we told people on Facebook was, if you can't be there for what we're trying to do, donate. Um, if you can't donate, volunteer your time um, for a nonprofit. That's what it's about, because the narrative that they're willing to show is that people are just violent. And the best thing that we can do is people is show them, just like Gandhi did, just like Martin Luther King did, was that we're not going to be nonviolent and we're interested in the conversation. So that's what I tell people to do. 
channel your anger and put it into action that shows that we are better than that narrative. Thank you for you, and thank you so much for, you know, showing the world how beautiful the Bay Area is. Yeah, no no problem. Um, and I just will say that it's, it's not an easy task to be African-American and listening to people saying what they say, but I think it's much easier than having to deal with one of them dying um, and then having to deal with that later on as far as repercussions. Thank you, Alex, and, and I'm sure we'll talk to Alex soon. Uh, I'm I hope, I mean, you know, this the, the protesting and all that, that's all part of the fight for equal rights. I think today was a great show. It was. I mean, we learned, I think, I learned a lot more about what went on, especially in Berkeley, because the the news reports on that have, this is not to pick on the news, because everyone is kind of seeing different angles of it, but uh, to really hear from some folks who were on the ground and saw what was happening and experienced what was happening, very important. One of the things that I mentioned, you know, before these rallies came to San Francisco, I put this in air quotes because, guys, we got to wake up and know that um, our own neighbors, our family, our, you know, people we work with are Donald Trump supporters. And some of them are vulnerable. Some of them are guys who are biting into this bait that I feel, you know, the president has uh, incited since his campaign and the bait of, you know, going after either young, impressionable, conservative right wing guys in college who want to, you know, uh, ride on this whole free speech thing or being able to say whatever they want or feeling like somebody's policing their language. Like the kind of guys that like a Milo Yiannopoulos has started to um, infect their brains. I'm just going to use these terms. And then the, the kind of guys who work really freaking hard for years and years and years to put food on the table for their families um, and who see very little, you know, I, I think quality of life, who started to get very angry about established politicians or career politicians, uh, doesn't matter, Democratic or Republican, who saw that, you know, Donald Trump was like a white knight on a jet. <laughs> <laughs> To, to, you know, save them from their woos. If you look at some of the speakers from Patriot Prayer, I mean, one of the guys is like a, a identify. He identifies himself as Jewish and Latino. And he's a former like gangster from L.A. And he's like tatted up and he's all about Jesus and all about like, you know, people who are illegally here shouldn't be here. Like you have to understand like the it's this is not just a white people thing that's going on with Donald Trump. It, uh, and in particular for the Chrissy Field thing, the one I saw, only one of the eight speakers scheduled to speak there was white. Yeah, exactly. Um, Joey Gibson's Japanese and, you know, so are that whole the, what we've actually the people we've interviewed right here on the show, you know, and and the people like Richard Rorty and his his thoughts and philosophy. I'm not saying he's 100 percent accurate, but there there was something about, you know, the forgotten middle class. There, there's, and I think, look, too much is made of, you know, Nazi Germany comparisons to this. There, there was a, quite a bit, a lot different going on there. And the point is also, this is not bad only if it turns into Nazi Germany, um, or more likely to turn into Russia. But um, when you look at what happened in, there, when you look at what happened in Eastern Europe, you look at, it's often a lot of these folks on the ground who, be, who join up to become, you know, a marcher, uh, 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 an activist, uh, uh, you know, one of these extremist groups, it doesn't matter which side. There are a lot of Nazis who used to be communists. There are a lot of former Nazis then who also became communists in Eastern Europe afterward. It's, they're looking for a place. They're looking for something that validates uh, power and, and uh, some sense of doing something about it. It kind of almost doesn't even matter what, what side it is. Exactly. I was reading something, and don't be upset, but this article touched on uh, Dean Kane, the Superman. <laughs> I was wondering, does she mean Superman? Uh, yeah, Dean Kane coming out in, in support of Donald Trump. And, no uh, way. Superman? Yeah. In support of yeah, he voted for well, Donald Trump and said that he's even definitely Hollywood. Definitely getting reelected now. Yeah. <laughs> and even Hollywood, you know, played a, a part in kind of corrupting this idea of America and and disrespecting our president, not giving our president a chance, and that his not all not all his policies are bad, especially on immigration and saying like I mean you know if you're here illegally you shouldn't be here. Then like that like just... if you came here from another planet. <laughs> 
this is what I want to voice is that it comes down to when I hear people talk about their support of Donald Trump, I feel like a lot of them are guys. A lot of them are men. We're not even going to go into the psyche of women who support Donald Trump. That's for a different show. But if we're going to be real about making it through, if he makes it, we're in for a lot of these types of fights. I think it's very important to be very authentic, be honest with yourself, choose what's healthy for you. And we can all get involved in very many different ways. Start focusing, in my opinion, at least, you know, start focusing on the issues. Anything to add, John, before we end the show? Um, I think from now on, next time I, I watch Batman versus Superman, I'm rooting for Batman. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. If you would like to join in on the conversation, you can do that at michellemeow.com. We'll see you tomorrow at the same time.